869 in the red hymnal. Psalm 102, a prayer of an afflicted man when he is faint and pours out his lament before the Lord. Hear my prayer, O Lord. Let my cry for help come to you. Do not hide your face from me. When I am in distress, turn your ear to me. When I call, answer me. Quickly, For my days vanish like smoke, my bones burn like glowing embers, my heart is blighted and withered like grass, I forget to eat my food. Because of my loud groaning I am reduced to skin and bones, I am like a desert owl, like an owl among the ruins. I lie awake, I have become like a bird alone on a roof. All day long my enemies taunt me. Those who rail against me use my name as a curse. For I eat ashes as my food and mingle my drink with tears. Because of your great wrath, for you have taken me up and thrown me aside. My days are like the evening shadow. I wither away like grass. But you, O Lord, sit enthroned forever. Your renown endures through all generations. You will arise and have compassion on Zion, for it is time to show favor to her. The appointed time has come. For her stones are dear to your servants. Her very dust moves them to pity. The nations will fear the name of the Lord. All the kings of the earth will revere your glory. For the Lord will rebuild Zion and appear in his glory. He will respond to the prayer of the destitute. He will not despise their plea. Let this be written for a future generation, that a people not yet created may praise the Lord. The Lord looked down from his sanctuary on high. From heaven he viewed the earth to hear the groans of the prisoners and release those condemned to death. So the name of the Lord will be declared in Zion and his praise in Jerusalem when the peoples and the kingdoms assemble to worship the Lord. In the course of my life, He broke my strength. He cut short my days. So I said, do not take me away, O my God, in the midst of my days. Your years go on through all generations. In the beginning, you laid the foundations of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment. Like clothing, you will change them, and they will be discarded. But you remain the same, and your years will never end. The children of your servants will live in your presence. Their descendants will be established before you. Amen. The grass withers, the flower fades, the word of our God endures forever. Amen. Number four, the shorter catechism, page 869. 
Let's read the answer together with one voice. What is God? God is a spirit, infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in his being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. I can remember setting out to go to seminary and thinking about one of the reasons that, that I wanted to go is because I loved to study. I loved to, to study the things of God and to, to think about it, to think about just a time where you could really sink in to these deep things of God. And I would think about just being able to sit on, particularly to sit in on lectures on the doctrine of God. And at that, at that point, I really didn't have any idea how you might make the doctrine of God something that would come alive in the life of a believer. That really wasn't my concern. I, I, I did it in order to, or I went to seminary largely because I, I liked that philosophical aspect of the Christian faith and learning about God's word in those deep ways. And then to be faced with the task of, of preaching the doctrine of God, preaching on these attributes of God and uh, these, these deep things that oftentimes require you to think in a philosophical way, it, it is quite a daunting thing because to give a lecture on it is one thing. Here's this attribute, here's what it means, here are the scriptures that teach God is infinite or eternal or unchanging. Uh, but then to, to put it before the people of God to say this is why this encourages us to do uh, more of living for God or more of serving your neighbors. A, a different question indeed. But as you go to the Psalms, uh, one of the things that has struck me over the years in trying to, to grow deeper in my appreciation for the word and in my knowledge of, of God's word is that oftentimes... In the Psalms, really what's in the background is the doctrine of God. Now, Psalm 102, I believe, is a, is a wonderful case of how someone is practically applying who he believes God is and some of those attributes. Psalm 102, as you hear really uh, particularly in that first section of the psalm, but really all throughout, Psalm 102 is wrestling with a life that's filled with suffering and trial. A life that has been forced to acknowledge that the wicked prosper. Uh, that life is stained with mortality. My days are like an evening shadow. Psalm 102, though, also wonderfully acknowledges an unchanging God, a powerful God, an eternal God, a God who hears our prayer, a God who is able to answer our prayer, a God who has promised to act on behalf of his people, one who will come and rebuild Zion. He will deliver his people. He will uh, bring forth a new generation who will declare his greatness. He will convert the kings of the earth to know him and uh, to bow before him. When you think about really those two categories of truths, 
who God is, eternally powerful, strong and mighty and unchangeable. Life is stained with mortality. Life is full of suffering and trial. Life is full of the prosperity of the wicked. Uh, You you might say that those two things uh, don't really match up. If God is all of those things, then shouldn't his people prosper? If God is all of those things, then shouldn't it be that those who praise him, that those who glorify him, would have lives that look a lot more like the benefits that many of uh, the wicked enjoy? But to answer the question of who God is, is to answer the question of that tension. Why why don't those who worship this all-powerful God, why do they not enjoy uh, consistently just times of ease and pleasure and prosperity? Because to answer who God is, is to begin to answer how we are to live in light of it. That if our life does not make sense to us, if we're having trouble putting together our grief and our pain and our suffering, to begin to live with a, a, a real grasp of what that means uh, would be to begin to understand who God is. If he is eternal, if he is unchanging, if he is eternally wise, then our best bet is always to fall upon the fact that he is God and I am not. He knows better than I do. It is given not to me to understand all of his purposes. I'm not going to be able to put it all together. I'm not going to be able to understand all of the things that he is doing. But I acknowledge that he is God and I am a mere creature. So hope is found then in a God that hears our prayer, in a God who is powerful enough to answer our prayer, in a God who never changes amidst a world of flux. Of old, it says, you laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will remain. They will all wear out like a garment. You will change them like a robe, and they will pass away. But you are the same, and your years have no end. We live a life where we don't really notice much of the changing of the earth that really much of much of everything looks the same in the course of a lifetime and yet the psalmist looks out to the earth and says the earth is as nothing before God in terms of time that that will wear out I wear out compared to the earth but the earth wears out in comparison to God And yet, this is a God who dwells with the lowly, the psalmist says. This is a God who will judge the world in righteousness, which becomes one of the main comforts, right? That whatever this life ends up being to me, I know that our God, because of who he is, will ultimately set things right. And then not only that, not only will God judge the world in righteousness, but God's people will be saved unto blessedness. The children of your servants shall dwell secure. This is a God who will give eternal blessedness to his people, but all in in his time. So Psalm 102 is really, I believe, a beautiful psalm to, to put on display Someone who's wrestling with the realities of life, but wrestling with the realities of life in light of the doctrine of God. So you just say, well, what does it mean that God is eternal? What does it mean that he is 
infinite. What does it mean that he is unchanging in his being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth? What does all that mean? Well, the first thing that it means is that we understand rightly the distance between ourselves and God. He is creator. We are creature. He is not the one who, uh, or we are not the ones who are putting together all of the loose ends of history. It is God who is doing that. And since God is doing that, then it calls us to uh, faith-filled trust of him. So those are some thoughts there on Psalm 102. We're going to go through various scriptures as we think about these things together. But wanted to uh, spend a few minutes unpacking uh, the meaning of Psalm 102 there. Which I think is a beautiful example of living in light of the doctrine of God. Which can be a bit of a difficult thing, I think, for, for biblical Christians. That the doctrine of the Trinity and these various deep things of God. Do they come and, and meet us in real life? Yes, they do. They're vital Vital to the way that we live before our God. But someone might read the Westminster Shorter Catechism, and really any catechism, and say, especially in our world, isn't it a bit unfair or uh, presumptuous that these catechisms, they seem to assume the existence of God? And and that certainly is true, isn't it? Um, These catechisms of the Reformation came about in a time where one of my seminary professors says there's really, there's really been three great questions that have been before humanity in different times. And at every time, there's really only one question. Uh, around the time of the Reformation, the only question is, was what? In other words, what has God said? What, what a human being tried to decipher in his or her life is, what has God said? And to someone who grew up in in a Christian setting, in the Christian church, that would mean basically going to the Bible and saying, what has God taught me about what I am to believe and what I am to obey? What has God said? From the, really the later, later 17th century, the Enlightenment up to probably the 20th century, the, the question changed from what to has. It no longer was what has God said, but has God said anything? You know, and, and the question of modernism is, can you really be sure that God has spoken? Can you really be sure that there is a God who speaks? And then, then on the heels of that came the postmodern question, which is the question uh, for most of our society. And it's a question of su- suspicion. Well, who's asking? Why do you want to know? Why do you care? Why are you coming into my business? And why are you trying to get involved in my life and what I believe? Really three great questions. What has God said? And that's really uh, the, the question that defined most of the Christian church for most of its existence. Has God said anything? The question of, of modernism. And the last question, the question of postmodernism. Who's, question, who, who's asking and why do you want to know? So these catechisms were written at a time where people assumed God has said something. And that was why they wrote these catechisms. But in light of that, we should give a couple of comments Uh, as to why it is good for us to believe that there is a God and to work off of that assumption. We can see that there is a God various ways. By the book of nature, Psalm 19 says, The heavens declare the, the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Isaiah 40 says, Lift up your eyes on high and see who created all of these. In other words, who created the heavenly bodies? He who brings out their hosts by number, calling them all by name. Because he is great in might and strong in power, not one of them is missing. When we 
look around to the world, we see the evidence of a great designer. We wouldn't open a dictionary and assume that it came about because of an explosion at a printing press. We wouldn't open a a beautiful clock and see all the workings of the clock and not assume that there was a a clockmaker who made all of it go. So it's natural to assume that there is a God through his creation of the world in the book of nature. We can see that there is a God by his prediction of future things. This is something that God uh, says to us again and again in the book of Isaiah. I've told you what was to come. I'm going to, to declare to you what is to come. If someone wants to say that they are a God, if there's a God out there wanting to make his case, let him come and tell you the things that are yet to occur. So Psalm, uh, Isaiah 45. Assemble yourselves and come. Draw near together, you survivors of the nations. They have no knowledge who carry about their wooden idols and keep on praying to a God that cannot save. Declare and present your case. Let them take counsel together. Who told this long ago? Who declared it of old? Was it not I, the Lord? And there is no other God besides me, a righteous God and a Savior. There is none besides me. Isaiah 41. Tell us what is to happen. God says, tell us the former things, what they are, that we may consider them, that we may know their outcome, or declare to us the things to come. Tell us what is to come hereafter, that we may know that you are God's. In other words, God says himself, if, if a God, if there's any God out there who wants to tell me what is to come, what's the future, let him declare it. But of course, we know that that hasn't happened. There is one God who has done that, the God of Scripture. What are some of the things that God predicts within his word. Well, in Deuteronomy 31, God predicted the rebellion of Israel. He prophesied of it. Moses writes, The Lord appeared at the tent in a pillar of the cloud and said, You are going to rest with your, under, with your ancestors, and these people will, will soon prostitute themselves to the foreign gods of the land they are entering. They will forsake me and break the covenant I made with them. Remember, we've been going to the book of the Judges. That's exactly what happens in Judges, that they adopt the gods in the land that they were occupying. God predicted the exile of Israel in the days of Moses. He said, if your heart turns away and you are not obedient, and if you are drawn away to bow down to other gods and to worship them, I declare that you will certainly be destroyed. You will not live long in the land you are crossing the Jordan to enter and possess. God said, I will take you from the land. And he did exactly that. God prophesied the return of Israel in Ezekiel 36. I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you back into your own land. God prophesied the birth of the Messiah, Isaiah 9. Unto us a child is born, a son is given. The government shall be upon his shoulder and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor. Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be No end. The Lord Jesus Christ himself predicted his own resurrection. In the book of Luke, we read, The Son of Man, Jesus says, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. So we see the existence of God in the book of nature, in his prediction of future things. In his display of power and providence in the world, Thomas Watson says this, Providence is the queen 
and governess of the world. It is the hand that turns the wheel of the whole creation. It sets the sun its race, the sea its bounds. If God did not guide the world, things would run into disorder and confusion. I was reading a book recently that was talking about the the way that this universe is so finely tuned for existence. The tilt of the earth, our distance from the sun, the, the, the molecular composition of everything in our world and in our atmosphere. And it was naming all of the things that if any of these were off just a tiny little bit, life would not, uh, or this world would not be uh, habitable. It would not be conducive to life. So God's bringing all things together in the fine-tuning for life. So with all of that, how how do we take something, a a doctrine of God type statement that God is, God is real, and how do we make it something that applies to our everyday life? Well, first, there's a a foolishness of atheism. To say there is no God is to suppress the truth and unrighteousness. It is to act in foolishness. There is no nation so foolish as to, be, as to not believe there is a God. That's one of the Greek philosophers who himself was not a Christian. The foolishness of atheism is one thing, explicit atheism, but the, the foolishness of practical atheism is another. Psalm 14, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. And the foolishness of the man in Psalm 14 who says there is no God is that he believes he can live his life and his sin will not be found out. That there will not be a judgment day. All the things that I do, I seem to get away with them. And so I don't need to worry about that. Because it does not seem that judgment ever comes. But God will set all things right. That is the the hope of Psalm 102. There will come a day where the righteous will be put on display. There will come a day where... The righteous are vindicated and the foolish and the disobedient are made known. So just to say we believe that God is, that God exists, is to say something that ought to be a bridle to our sinfulness and a spur to duty. When we say we believe that there is a God, we are saying that we ought to live in a way that we are working to suppress our own sin And to increase in service towards that God. How do we do that? Well, we don't have time to answer that question. But normally, we uh, would explore that through the lens of grace. We serve God and we are reconciled to God in his grace. But ultimately, we live with this knowledge that your sin will find you out. In In the last year, I think, there have been at least two men who have been forced to stand trial for the atrocities that they committed in the Nazi regime. Many of them, uh, many of these men who served in the Nazi regime and uh, were executing, killing people daily, a lot of them uh, escaped to places like South America. And uh, many of them, anyone who is still alive at this point, obviously would be very advanced in age. And I think just in the last couple of weeks, there was a a man in his upper 90s who stood trial and received uh, several life sentences And some of you uh, may say, well, what's the point? What's the point of finding this man and making him stand trial where there's, there's something in us that cries out for justice? And there's a reminder, even in that little story, that your sin will find you out. 
Your sin will find you out, whether it's in this life or the next. So to live saying we believe there is a God is to say we believe there will be a judgment day. And that becomes a practical thing for us. The Westminster Shorter Catechism says that God is a spirit. He's a spirit. In other words, he is spiritual. He's a spiritual being. That's to say that he is not extended in space. He doesn't have a body. He is indivisible. He's not made up of parts. He is invisible, something that eyes do not see. 1 Timothy 1.17, to the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory. God is a spirit. That's the kind of, of being we're dealing with when we're, when we're dealing with the God of the universe. And if God is a spiritual being, then we ought to be the, type of, uh, the, the types of people who have our spiritual health as a primary concern. In other words, as we evaluate our own lives, it's not just the kinds of things that we do outwardly that we ought to be concerned about. We ought to be concerned about our spiritual sins. We ought to be concerned about the health of that part that is unseen to others and who we are spiritually. God is a spirit. God is infinite. God is infinite. What does it mean that God is infinite? Well, three Three things that we'll highlight. First, uh, in respect of the perfection of his nature, his wisdom, power, and holiness exceed all measures and limits. This is one of those examples where we can only explain God through way of negation. What is God? He is not finite. See, it's, it's a negative statement. He is infinite. 1 Samuel 2, 2. There is none holy like the Lord. There is none besides you. There is no rock like our God. In other words, however holy he is, it's beyond our ability to comprehend because it does not end. There is no end to his holiness. Secondly, God is infinite in respect of time and place. He can't be measured by time. He can't be measured in any sort of length or size. He is from everlasting to everlasting. 1 Kings chapter 8. Will God dwell on the earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you. How much less this house that I have built. Jeremiah 23. Can a man hide himself in secret places so that I cannot see him, declares the Lord? Do I not fill heaven and earth, declares the Lord. And then thirdly, he is incomprehensible. He is incomprehensible. Job 11, verse 7. Can you find out the deep things of God? Can you find out the limit of the Almighty? It is higher than heaven. What can you do? Deeper than Sheol, what can you know? As we consider God's infinity, his infinitude, what are some ways that we live practically in light of it? Well, first we should say that we will never know God fully, but we can know God truly. In other words, it's not such that we need to completely wrap our minds around him, which would be impossible, in order to gain any correct understanding. We can understand, know God truly, even though we do not know him fully. And that means that we should never stop seeking him. Because we can never exhaust who he is. And he is the highest good. I've shared this story with you before. Forgive me for telling it again. 
but uh, one of the first churches where I served, kind of an internship kind of thing, there was a man who would skip the sermons. So he would go and, and sit, he would have his coffee, and he was part of some group that met after the, after the service. I think he helped to teach. And I asked him one time, why don't you attend the, the, the sermon, the service? And he said, well, I've heard, I've heard every sermon before, uh, so there's really no reason for me to, uh, for me to sit in there because I've, I've learned all that I can. And, you know, obviously this, this man had a, had a good heart, but such a thing is ludicrous because a human mind will never come close to fully grasping God and to believe that he's at work when his word is preached is to say each and every time God is going to show me something and teach me something, even if I don't realize it myself, uh, he's going to teach me something that I did not know before. So we should never stop seeking him. This is, a, this is a challenge to not only seek God on Sundays, but each and every day of our lives, to fill our lives with prayer and the reading of Scripture, to have family worship throughout the week, not just to come to church as a family on Sundays, though that is a wonderful thing, but to fill our lives seeking Him more and more, for He is infinite. And then, finally, we must set God always before us. In other words, if God is infinite, if there's nowhere that we can go where we are outside of his presence and beyond his ability to see, then we must always consciously and cognizantly set God before us. So John Flavel says this, when the eye of our faith is fixed upon the eye of God's omniscience, we dare not let our thoughts and affections to vanity. We have to say always... Would I be comfortable doing this knowing that God, or am I comfortable doing this knowing that God sees all and that he is watching? So God is infinite, God is eternal. God is the only truly eternal being. Why? Because he had no beginning and he'll have no end. We go on forever, but that's a gift of God. Our eternity into the future, that is a gift of God. God's eternity stretches in both directions, and it's necessary to who he is. Because God is everlasting, we can rejoice because our salvation is everlasting. The benefits of our salvation will last forever. God is unchangeable. He's unchanging. God never changes. He is the same yesterday and today and forever. He's unchanging in all that he is. So everything that God is, he always shows his attributes. He can't act in contradiction with his attributes. His attributes don't contradict with each other. His justice and his grace don't disagree. His justice and his mercy and grace are perfectly in accord. And however they are worked out in history, that is the perfection of grace and justice. He is unchanging in his being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. So if God is unchanging, then this means that his knowledge is perfect, his knowledge has always been perfect, and one of the main applications of that is that we must trust his word. We must be people who are consciously committed to being shaped by God's word, because not only is God's knowledge perfect, but his knowledge about how to teach us about himself then must be perfect. He knows exactly what to declare to us in order to sanctify and shape his people. 
And then if God's power is beyond our comprehension and his power is always perfect and it never changes, we must entrust to him our concerns that weigh us down. We must entrust to him our futures. We must entrust to him our lives because he knows better than we do what we can handle. He knows better than we do what prepares us for our eternal home. Just as God's The benefits of God's salvation will last forever, so the benefits of his salvation will never change. We live in in a world of renegotiated contracts, don't we? An NFL player might sign an eight-year deal after one season, he's unhappy with it, and he's holding out to get a new one restructured. God doesn't renegotiate any of his deals, any of his contracts. They always remain the same. The, The benefits last into eternity, and they never will change. God is infinite, he's eternal, he's unchangeable in all that he is. His wisdom cannot be fathomed, his grace cannot be comprehended, his greatness is unsearchable. To know God a little bit more is to know a little bit more about why he is so worthy of our worship. So Paul, at the end of the book of Romans, at the end at least of the The salvation section of Romans, he ends in doxology. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable are his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? These are things that we will never know fully. But to return to Psalm 102, it gives us a disposition to be able to say in the midst of every situation, whenever we can't make sense of something, We're reminded that God is God, we are not, he never changes, and he is worthy of our trust and our reliance upon him and our reliance upon his word. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for these deep things, and we pray that we will have learned a little bit about you tonight, and that we would be able to live in light of it in a way that is true and right and good. We pray that you will shape us for the coming week and that we would give you all of the glory. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.